Well, good morning, and we are now uh, back in the book of First Thessalonians and looking at chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. We started this last week, so this is part two. And if you're not already there in your Bibles, please turn there, and if you don't have a Bible, then I would invite you to grab one, maybe one of those blue ones located underneath the seat around you, and in that Bible you can turn to page 988. So dinner for six, we've done it before. You're like, why am I still talking about it? Because it really has, um, has something to do even with the sermon today. If you weren't here last week, I spent a little bit of time kind of introducing the text and gave you some thoughts about the text. And so if you weren't here, I would encourage you to, when you can, go back online and maybe listen to that. But in order to get at this text, in order to comply with the exhortations here, it assumes some things about the church to which Paul was writing, and any church for that matter. It assumes that they know one another on some level, uh, that they're partnered together, that they care about each other. And so Dinner for Six is just another way to get at that. It's not the only way for you, who maybe you don't know a lot of folks here, or maybe you do, but you want to get to know them a little bit better. What better than meeting together in someone's home for dinner? and doing that. And so we kind of set that all out. So all you got to do is mark it off your calendar, sign up, and then we'll do the rest. You'll have to bring something probably to the dinner and they work all that out. So it's not like a free meal or anything of that nature, but it's, uh, I better say that now. But, the, but it is a chance to get together in someone's home in a very casual way and a non-formal way and, and yeah, speak into each other's lives which is going to be necessary, you know, get to know your brothers and sisters in Christ or get to know them better. It's going to be necessary if we have any hope of, you know, fulfilling these simple commands here. So let me read the text. I'll do just a little review because we really didn't get that far in the passage. And then, and again, if you weren't here, I would encourage you to go back and listen to what I said. I don't want to repeat everything I said from last week. But, uh, and then we'll just jump right in and continue on. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul records this, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil, or repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So again, just a reminder, Timothy, uh, Paul's companion in the ministry, co-worker in the gospel ministry, Timothy has come back after checking in on this new church, this young church in Thessalonica, and certainly has given him some information about that church, and, and likely it's, it is impacting why he's writing these particular things to that church. So, the verses just before this, as this letter closes out, he really is addressing the church and its leadership, talking to the church about its leadership and their responsibility toward their leadership. And that's in verses 12 and 13. And you might remember he, he exhorts them, listen, respect and esteem them very highly in love for their work. And I had mentioned to you that maybe he got back a report, this is kind of a new church, 
Um, now these, you know, these elders, these under-shepherds, these pastors were appointed in this new church. Maybe there was some tension there, and they were thinking to themselves, the Christian body might have been thinking, you know, we all came to Christ at the same time. Why are they in a position of leadership? And so maybe Paul felt it important to write to them, listen, you need to respect them. You need to esteem them highly in love for the work that they are doing. And just kind of pointing that out, that's your responsibility. That's how you should relate to those who have been appointed to be over you in the Lord, caring for your souls, looking out for you, admonishing you, all of those things that are the responsibility of the leadership of a church. But now he transitions a little bit, still talking to the church, and he now talks about the church's responsibilities concerning the membership or the other members of the body. So here's your responsibilities concerning your leadership, respect and esteem them highly in love. Here's your responsibilities that I want to talk to you about concerning the other members, your other brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the idea. Okay? And it's again, it's not exhaustive, so it's not, these are your only responsibilities, but these are the ones I want to address, likely because of Timothy's report uh, back to him concerning these matters. He felt these needed to be addressed. So in 14 and 15, he's basically wanting the church body to attend to and help other brothers and sisters in the congregation with various problems, various problems as stated here in the text. Uh, or as one writer put it, those who need special attention. In other words, there's a responsibility that you have for one another. Okay? You have for one another. You. You. You have a responsibility for one another to care for, to look out for, and to address these matters as they come up within the body. And again, as I told you, that assumes or presupposes certain things about the church. It means that and I, got a, I went a long time talking about this last week, but it means that you're treating this community in a very different way than how we generally treat our neighborhoods, right, or those communities uh, that we are partnering with, that we see this as a partnership, that we are taking an active interest in each other's lives, that we're caring about one another, thinking about one another, and doing our part to get to know one another. Again, the idea is not that uh, that Lewis here is responsible to try to get to know every single person in this body. Uh, and as I said, if we were a t- size of 20, then certainly I think that would be manageable, yes? I mean, he could just have 20 over to his house, right? At any one time, he could do this. He probably has done something like that. But as you grow bigger, that's going to be a little bit more difficult. So that's not the expectation, but the expectation is that you are getting to know others as you can, as you are able The idea is not that you would know no one. That's not, that doesn't fit. That's not, that's not church life. Or that's not the expectation that Paul would have for the church, that you would come here and leave and never get to know anybody. That's weird. Strange. And that would be how we interact with our neighborhoods. And we wouldn't think anything wrong about that even. We might even think that's, a, as I said, a good neighbor who minds his own business. And, you know, again, a high and a buy, but they go into their garage, the garage door shuts. I go into my garage, my garage door shuts. We're polite, 
but we really don't know much about each other, nor do we, are we involved on any real level in each other's lives. That should not be the church. And so, and so we, as a leadership, we, we, we try to implement things that will facilitate you getting to know one another so that you might care for one another, so that you might fulfill these exhortations that are here and many other places, all the one another's, right? But then you must take advantage of them, like dinner for six, okay? And that, listen, it's not the only thing. So it, it doesn't mean if you don't sign up for dinner for six, there's something wrong with you. Maybe you're busy both those nights. But if you're not busy both those nights, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? If you're making an effort to, and again, maybe you'll get to know someone you don't know, or maybe you'll, get to, you'll, you'll show up, it's everyone you already know, and maybe you take that opportunity to get to know them better to, so that you might pray for them, so that you might, as you'll see, fulfill these responsibilities that you have to one another. Now, you don't have to wait for us to try to facilitate that, us being the leadership as we work towards that. So it's men's studies, women's studies, growth groups, all of them designed to facilitate such things in part, also to train and to instruct and to disciple, but also to facilitate that coming together because you ain't doing it here, Really, right? You can't, you're listening to me. So you can't get to know one another really here, and maybe before service or after service, yes, right? But then, but if you come, you know, in 15 minutes late and then leave as soon as I say it's over, then you don't even take advantage of this time to get together. So you have to make the effort, and you should make the effort if you understand the church correctly, and if you care about the church, if you love the church, and you should. Christ loved the church, loves the church, not past tense. Christ loves the church, right? And if you love Christ, then you should love what he loves. So, anyway, stuff to think about. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Sorry. I'm totally just, you know, this is extemporaneous. There's no notes here. But listen, I just wanted to speak to you from the heart. So you don't have to wait for us. That's what I was going to say. You don't have to wait for us to try to put something together. You make the effort. Invite people over to your home. I know some of you have never even probably done that. I know recently I've been in a person's home and they've never done that. Okay, so what? Start somewhere. You know? No one's inviting me to their home. Okay. I can't have any, I don't have no control over that, you know? And neither does anyone else. So why not, but have you made an effort? You know, friendship, partnership, it's a two-way street, folks. So do your part. Do your part to get involved and and be patient with your brothers and sisters as they're trying to work through this too. Because like I said, I think that whole mentality, especially in SoCal, I see it more. If you go out Midwest, just different places, man, they are just generally more hospitable, more open. Like, we don't, here, we don't trust anybody. We're suspicious of everyone. And my, nobody comes into my home, including my brothers and sisters in Christ. We got to break that, okay? I get being suspicious, especially here in SoCal. I get it. I'm not saying don't be suspicious. I'm saying let your guard down a little bit and invite your brothers and sisters in Christ in to your life. It's the only way you're going to be able to accomplish these things. They need to get to know you. You need to get to know them. 
And again, it doesn't mean I got to get to know everyone in here. That's not what we're talking about. But do you have a group that you know, that you're praying for regularly, that you care about, that you're checking in on? You with me? Yeah, this is how, how are we going to love one another if I don't even, don't even, you know, I, I don't even know your name. I mean, gosh, I got to start there, I think. I'd have to know your name. I'd have to know some things about you. I'd have to have some relationship with you. How do I speak into your life if, if I've never, ever spoken to you? It'd be hard. But if I have some type of relationship with you, now the door is open or I can advance further into that. And not just me advancing into your life, you advancing into mine. Anyway, God has set up the church for us to, to be together in this partnership. It's a body, folks. It's a body. doesn't make any sense. The arm's hanging out over there. That doesn't make any sense. The arm needs to be with the body. And beyond that, a family, brothers and sisters in Christ. A dysfunctional family. <laughs> but a family. So anyway, first exhortation that we covered last week was admonish the idol, which is, I told you, warn or reprimand the idol. An idol, I, you could, the Greek word, is literally someone or something that is out of order. So it's those, the idea is those not doing what they ought, not fulfilling their responsibilities, being irresponsible. So he says to the brothers and sisters in Christ, so we could take that to mean to those who are not being idle, those who are doing what they're supposed to, fulfilling responsibilities, look, as you look around, as you know, or you become aware of those in your body that are being idle, you need to admonish them. So remember I said last week, admonishing is certainly the business of the leadership, but it's not only their business. Like if it's just on us to admonish, that's going to be pretty difficult. Uh, we don't always know everything that's going on, right? And yes, we are called to admonish Certainly, and admonishment, that ministry happens even just as we work through the scriptures together and they're preached and explained. But here it's speaking to the body at large that they too have a responsibility to admonish their brothers and sisters in Christ who are specifically, in this case, being idle, being idle. And likely, the specific idleness is probably based on context. This is all, again, review would be those who could work but aren't working. They're really not providing for themselves. So then they're becoming an undue burden to the body and really just not fulfilling their general common responsibilities to provide for themselves, to work when they can work. Uh, it could be certainly, though, if it is work, if that's the issue at hand, um, there could, they could be applied, this idleness could be applied in many other areas where there might be irresponsibility, not fulfilling one's responsibilities. Being lazy. And uh, again, even like we see this, this matter being addressed in the letter to, the, to uh, the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 4.28, to the church, Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, so, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so... The thief, you know, he's being lazy. Instead of doing what he should be doing, going out and making a living, not only to support himself, maybe his family, but also to have something to share with others. That's a novel idea, huh? You know? 
working so that he might be in a place where God could use him to be a blessing to others materially, right? Just a different way to think. It's not just, I got to make my, my money for me, but make money or, you know, an income so that I can not only provide, because that's my responsibility for myself and for others, but even outside of my own family, maybe someone who's in need. But stop being lazy, because laziness would be, you know, I'm not going to work because I know I can just steal. I'll just go steal from the marketplace or steal from the, the crop that is not mine to get my food. I'll sit around and be a bum all day and, and then just, you know, be a thief to provide for myself. Admonish the idol, you know. And again, it's not like, whoosh, you know, like a whip, like you, you're whipping them or something, but everything would be done with love. But admonish them, rebuke them. This is not how you are to live, Christian. This is, this is not only what God has not called you to be a lazy, irresponsible person, but beyond that, it's a terrible witness to the world at large who's watching. You think this is a good witness to Jesus Christ? You say you follow him, but then you're undisciplined. You're not caring for your own. You're not doing the basic things that everyone should go out and do, earning your own living. Admonish those people, right? So they're coming out of a lifestyle of whatever lifestyle that is, they've entered into Christianity. This is what it looks like for a Christian to follow Christ and to live appropriately. You can't be idle. You shouldn't be idle. So admonish them, that's all, right? So we dealt with that. Now, back to the text. That was the first exhortation, looking back at verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So the second exhortation there after admonish the idle is encourage the faint-hearted. And I said this last time, don't confuse the exhortations. We don't admonish the faint-hearted and encourage the idle, although we may do that, right, at times, wrongly. We want to admonish the idle and encourage the faint-hearted. And literally, the Greek word for faint-hearted, it's an interesting word they chose to try to capture the meaning of the Greek word, but it literally means the small-souled, sold, the small-souled. So one, uh, another translation of the Bible, a couple other translations of the Bible, translate that Greek word, the discouraged. Okay? Encourage the faint-hearted or the discouraged or the small-souled. And discourage, if we were to provide, if I were to provide you an English definition of the word discourage, that would be having lost confidence or enthusiasm or disheartened. Disheartened. That word, it, it occurs only, it's interesting, it occurs only here in the New Testament. It's the only place that it shows up, the specific Greek word, small-souled. Uh, so one scholar points out that it, it could indicate a person who is timid as a personality trait or one who is discouraged at a particular turn of events. Okay? I would take it, as these translations that I've talked about do, as one who is discouraged, not as a personality trait. And I think this is, again, where translations, you need to look at several translations and consider these things when you're reading through your Bible. As I've said before, I think, generally speaking, the ESV is a solid translation. But as an example, the, uh, the NIRV, which is the New International Reader's Version, which I refer to as well, they take this word to refer to a, a personality trait. They take the idea, it's talking about a timidness, and so they actually translate this section, cheer up those who are shy. Cheer up those who are shy. 
I think that's a bad translation, okay? I don't think Paul is saying, hey, make sure you look around and, you know, if they're shy, a little shy, you need to cheer them up. No. I think he's saying you need to encourage those who are disheartened, who are faint-hearted, who are small-souled, small of soul. There are members within your body who have become discouraged for some reason, likely because of adverse circumstances. Adverse circumstances. So what might those adverse circumstances be in this case, in this historical context? Why might there be those folks in that body in Thessalonica who are discouraged, who are faint-hearted, who Paul says, hey you, look around, those folks among you who are this way, you need to encourage them. Why might they be discouraged? One writer says this, just considering the letter in large, as we look back on the letter, it could be the death of fellow Christians, as we read about in chapter 4, that's, that's causing them to be disheartened. It could be the persecution by non-Christians in chapter 2. It could be attempting and sometimes failing to live according to a new ethic. Remember, they gave them instruction about their morality concerning, concerning sexuality, and that would have been a very new ethic for these pagans, right? And so they may have been struggling with that and struggling with the very significant change in their life and how they live. Could have been the absence of the evangelist, the fact that Paul and his team were ripped away sooner than they wanted to be ripped away, and they had a, a beautiful relationship, and he wanted to stay longer, but he was forced out, and they're broken over that. They wish that he was still there with them. Chapter 2. Could be various trials and temptations, as we read about in chapter 3 that could have discouraged some of the believers. Whatever the difficulty, the church was to attempt to encourage such people. Encourage such people. Encourage the faint-hearted. One writer goes on to say, these discouraged individuals needed to be encouraged, cheered up, stimulated, and helped along. They did not need to be rebuked and warned like the idol, okay? but rather needed to be encouraged through the use of helpful words to continue the battle for the Lord. And beloved, it is a battle. Huh? It is a battle. I mean, honestly, the second you enter into Christianity, then you were a fish swimming downstream. Now you are swimming upstream against the current of a fallen culture and a sinful world and battling even your own flesh, right? Before you were going with the flow, man. Kind of just fish, you know, just cruising along. You enter into Christianity, all of a sudden, it's a war, a good war. But it's a war nonetheless. You got all these enemies coming against you. Your own flesh hates the fact that you have surrendered to the Lord. The world ruled and dominated by the ruler of this world, the enemy of our souls is working against you, right? And then the enemy himself is working against you. It's like, wow, that's fun. No, not, it's not fun. It's not fun. At times, it's really not fun. It is a battle, and it comes against you, and at times, you can become small-souled, discouraged, disheartened, yeah? But how would you know? If your brother and sister is such, if their heart is disheartened, how would you know if you don't know anybody? 
You see what I'm saying? How would you know? Well, you need to know. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, well, I, often I do know. Pastor does know. The elders, together, we know, we try, we do our best to know. But how, we can't keep track of everyone, and if it was just left to us to try to manage these things, that's not good for this body. Four guys, five guys, trying to make sure we're always there to encourage all who are disheartened. Believe me, yes, I'll do it, I do it. Those who know me, those who are close to me, those who have spent time with me, they know when I know you're down. If I know, when I know... Then I look, if I'm thinking rightly and I'm not too, you know, caught up with a bunch of other things, I, I look to encourage you, speak truth to you, yes. Some of you know that because you've been with me. But I can't do it all, neither can the elders. This is why Paul says to the body, look among yourselves, to your brothers and sisters. You got some folks there who are down, right? This Christian life is a battle. They're battling for the Lord. And the enemy would love to see them stay down. Encourage them. We need one another. Okay? We need each other to be involved in each other's lives. This idea of mind your own business, that works fine for your neighborhood. It does not belong in the church. Well, how might you encourage them? How might you encourage them? I don't know. Beloved, think. Can you think of a way that you might encourage your brother and sister in Christ? I mean, it depends on what's discouraging them, certainly. But sometimes just listening. Just being there to listen, you know? Just having an ear to hear what they're struggling with. Their brokenness. Having someone just put their hand on their back. Say, I'm here for you. Praying with them. Praying for them. Instructing them. Not like, you need to hear this instruction, but taking from the Word of God those passages, those sections that would help them. Maybe they're not thinking rightly about the situation. By that I mean biblically, which is lending to their discouragement. They need to think rightly about the situation, which will help get them out of that funk that they are in, that downness that will bring strength back to their soul, that will blow it back up, will bring them joy. I don't, I don't, there are many things. So again, that assumes that you know your Bible to some degree. Right? That, that you're not just, look, I'll do my Bible reading because, uh, you know, I guess it's something I'm supposed to do as a Christian. Yeah, you should do it as a Christian, but it, gosh, there's so much more to it than that. Or I'll do my Bible reading because I think it pleases God when I, when I read his word. Oh, it does please God uh, when you read his word, certainly, yeah. But how about this idea, you know? I'm going to read my Bible not only for the sake of my own soul because this is food that I need so that I don't shrivel up, but I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to study my Bible so that when my brother and sister need some of that food, I have something to offer them. Wow, what a different way about reading your Bible then or studying your Bible. I need to know this book because God has made me part of a church. And my dear brothers and sisters in Christ from time to time are going to be greatly discouraged 
disheartened. And what will I use to bring them out of that? Your word, God, your word. But if I don't know it, then how am I going to use it? Where would I go? Do you even know where you would go? Maybe even start to bring someone out of discouragement, you know? I mean, there are some common places that you can go in the word of God. Find out if you don't know. Find out. In fact, when you're reading your Bible, maybe you say, wow, that is a powerful passage for someone who has maybe is down or for me when I've been down. You mark it, you know, that kind of thing. But you're thinking not just for your own self, but thinking for your brothers and sisters in Christ. It just totally changes the whole dynamic of the body. So, commenting on that, one writer says, hey, you can remind them of these things, the biblical certainty that their Lord answers their prayers, you know, could be that. They've been praying for it. Well, he'll answer your prayer. It may not be what you want. It may be something else, but you know God is good. He is good. He is righteous. He is perfect. He is holy. So he'll answer according to his timetable, and he'll answer how he thinks is fit, but you can trust him. His answer is always right and good, so trust in the Lord. You could talk to them about the security of their salvation. You could talk to them about the fact that they'll be included in the final resurrection. Glory. You could talk about the fact that God loves you and he will love you eternally. Nothing will change that. You can talk about so many things, so many scriptural themes, right, from the Bible that would encourage folks. So again, Paul doesn't address all those details. He just says, encourage the faint-hearted. Okay? Back again to our text, he says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the aisle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Help the weak. The New King James translates the word help, uphold. Uphold, which is a better translation, actually. One writer says this, Help is a somewhat imprecise rendering of the Greek word, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, which means, that Greek word, to hold firmly, to cling to, to support, to hold up. Paul commanded the stronger sheep to come alongside the weaker sheep. Again, it's the, I think it's obvious, but I, think I'm just, I just want to keep driving home the point. How are you, if you're in a position of strength, going to help the weak sheep if you don't know which sheep are weak? And how would you know if you come in and then leave, and then that's it. That is the extent of your participation with this local body. How would you ever know? You wouldn't. And you could not then fulfill these exhortations. And it's because you're not treating the church as you should, or thinking about it rightly, or interacting with it in the way that you should as a believer in Jesus Christ, being part of his local body being connected with and partnering with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're not thinking rightly, my friends. You're not thinking rightly if that's true of you. You need to think rightly. You need to repent of your wrong thinking. And if you are thinking rightly and you are connected to this body in a way that you should be and partnering with it, then you certainly will come across those that you are connected with in this body who are weak. And the instruction is to you to help them. And when you are weak, then hopefully someone else will come along and help you. Right? It's both ways. 
So a week here can refer to that word. It could, be, it could refer to both physical and spiritual weakness, all right? But in this context, it's best, I believe, to understand it as a spiritual weakness of some sort, a spiritual weakness. There's no reason, there's nothing in the context that would make us think he's talking about a physical illness or impairment or something of that sort. But it can be used either way in the Scriptures. One writer says it may refer to those who were struggling to follow the Lord because of persecutions. Remember the church in Thessalonica, they had come out of paganism. Their whole culture is a pagan culture. So they would have been been standing out to their world very clearly as they stopped their pagan practices, which were a part of every part of their life. So you really couldn't, if you were to follow Jesus in Thessalonica, you couldn't be a really secret Christian. Okay? You just... Not, not faithfully do it, because you had to, you had to set, up, set yourself apart from so many things that were normally a part of that pagan lifestyle. And so you stood out. Well, what's going on? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you with us anymore? Why aren't you making these sacrifices? Why aren't you? Well, I follow the Lord Jesus. And then that means that you don't follow those other gods, and that he is Lord and Lord alone. And so persecution, right? So that's, they could be feeling weak or spiritually weak or tempted. Maybe even temptations are coming their way. Like, is this, is this, is this worth it? You know, man, my life was, again, I was swimming downstream. So everything was kind of cool and everyone was liking me and I was liking everybody. And this is what we did. And now the sudden I'm following Jesus. This is some difficulty here, some serious difficulty. Is it worth it? Of course, because he's worthy, of course. But but we're all, you know, these thoughts come into our minds and we are weak people, you know, generally speaking. So uh, help them, uphold them, come alongside them. You're weak. I think I'm going to beat you until you get stronger. No. <laughs> One Bible scholar comments that the presence of weak believers in the church I like this. The presence of weak believers in the church is no Thessalonian, this is a slide, no Thessalonian peculiarity. It's a hard word to say for some reason for me. Peculiarity. It's no Thessalonian peculiarity. Weak souls are the normally frail human stuff of which the Christian church consists. I ain't weak. No, you're just arrogant. I mean, maybe you're not weak now, and then you thank God for his grace in your life, but give it time. Give it time. This life has a way, especially as a Christian, of, yeah, getting to you. And you'll have moments where you are weak, and you need someone to come alongside you and hold you up. One writer says, truly converted people... They could be weak for various reasons. He goes on to say, some believers are weak through lack of knowledge of the will of God. Some through lack of courage to trust God. I'm having trouble trusting God. They're weak. All right, so I need to come alongside and and tell them all the reasons they should trust God. And I might be reminding them of all the things they know. That's okay. Or I might be telling them things they don't know, but biblical things, but you know. No, I'm helping them. I'm upholding them. Trust God. Some, through lack of stability or purpose, are easily carried away. Some lack courage to face or will to endure persecution or criticism. 
You know, even we, we don't experience the persecution, certainly, of the church in, that the church did in Thessalonica. We don't. But there's some level, certainly criticism for your Christian faith. Any of you have come out of a Catholic family and pursued Christianity? There's been probably some criticism. Right? Or my good friend Aaron, who came left Jehovah Witnesses. There he is right there. Right? That's, like, what's wrong with you, brother? If you're not, how, why, why would you do that? Why would you abandon your family like that? Criticism and that looking at you like there's something wrong with you. And it could cause a weakness. Another writer, he goes on to say, some are unable to control the appetites of the body or the impulses of the mind. They're struggling to live out the Christian life. Right? So whip them until they get it right. You know, I have this shirt. Uh, I don't wear it very much anymore. I used to think it was really funny, but now I realize, and I still find some humor in it, but it could be taken wrong. But it's a pirate ship, and it says, uh, the beatings will continue until the morale improves. The beatings will continue until the morale improves. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I find humor in it, but it's not certainly not a way... Uh, that we should carry out our church relationships. <laughs> and by the way, as we're you know, working through this passage and, and we're thinking about the church, because certainly that's to whom it is written, that local church, and then by extension to this local church, it applies to us. But certainly, think about it. You could apply these things even to your own family unit. Huh? It's your own family unit. Monish the idol. I mean, if you have teenagers, <laughs> then you know what I'm talking about for sure. Monish the idol. Encourage the faint-hearted. You know, your spouse is down, your kids are down, they're disheartened. Get over it. That what? <laughs> that's not that's not a Christian approach at all. That's you know, toughen up, suck it up. Help the weak? Your spouse ever weak? Huh? Has your spouse ever been weak? So do you think, I need to help them, I need to uphold them. I need to come alongside them. Or do you think, what a burden this is to me? Their weakness. Ugh. Why can't they be strong like me, you know? You know what I'm saying? Well, I think you would help your spiritually weak brother or sister in the same way you might encourage them again. You know, praying with them, praying for them, providing them doctrinal instruction, all of those things, right? Help them. Practically look to help them. All right, back to our text. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. I absolutely uh, uh, lied. I, I told my brother in the back there that we would be finished early, and I did lie for sure. I did. Because he's like, you only have three and a half pages of notes. I go, we'll finish early. And he looked at me like, okay. And 
he was right. So anyway, verse 14, we urge you, brothers, and help the weak. Be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. Patience, it means to exhibit internal and external control in difficult circumstances. In difficult circumstances. Long-suffering is another translation of this Greek word, which I, I actually really like that word, long-suffering, or that translation of it. To suffer long, to endure difficult circumstances, and to control your internal and external output and during these difficult circumstances. Patience, by the way, beloved, is an ingredient of Christian love and the fruit of the Spirit. It's an it's a ingredient of Christian love and a fruit of the Spirit. We know that to be true because that's what the Scriptures tell us. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, the first thing Paul tells us about love is what? 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is? Yeah, the first thing. Love is patient. Love is long-suffering. You know, we did this whole study, love or die, loving one another. All right, beloved. If you're not patient with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're not loving them. Okay? They're just, I mean, bottom line, this is simple. Don't tell me you're loving them and then you're blowing up on them, you're not long-suffering, you know, they're not, you know, they're not acting as fast as you'd like them to act or responding to you as quickly as you'd want them to respond, so you're flipping out on them. You're not being patient, you're not loving them. Okay? End of story. So what do you do? Repent, confess your sin, and then by the power of God and the Holy Spirit, according to the Word of God, live in obedience to Him, love, be patient. Right? In Galatians 5.22, we get this power from the Spirit because it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, patience. The kind of patience you're going to need to honor God and love God and care for the body of Christ, your brothers and sisters. Who can be obstinate and honorary and difficult? Because they're human beings. Right? I, mean, I don't know what you were thinking. You know, you come to the church, you're like, these people should be perfect. No, they're redeemed, they're on a new path, they're growing at some pace, but they're still struggling, they're still working through things, they're still wrestling with stuff. They are not yet glorified. That's when you can expect perfection, and it will be wonderful for all of us, certainly. So there's a few other passages, you know, in Ephesians. We won't look at them in Colossians where Paul instructs the church to be patient with one another. Well, why? Why does he bring that up at this, at this particular spot? Well, one writer says, dealing with the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak requires this special disposition, patience, because they so often refuse to respond immediately to constructive counsel, Right? I admonish the idol. They're idle. This is their pattern. This is their habit. Sometimes they might snap too. Sometimes they may not. Be patient. Admonish. Be patient. Admonish. How about the faint-hearted? The faint-hearted is down, and you don't. Maybe they're way down in that ditch. I come alongside. I encourage. I'm there for them. I give them scriptures as appropriate. Hey. Why aren't you out of your disheartened state? Why don't you snap out of it? That's not patience. It may take a while. Huh? Help the weak. I don't know. How long is that going to take? Can I do it in a few minutes? I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes it's quick. Sometimes the response is immediate. But more often than not, 
That's just not the case. If they're weak, you know, you go into, if you're weak, or let's just talk about a physical impairment of some sort, you know, you go in, and then the doctor's like, or the hospital's like, all right, look, you got one hour to get better, (laughs) you know, because that's all I got. I got one hour for you, no more. I'm on a schedule here. I mean, you'd be like, no, no, I, I hope that you would treat me until I get better. Stick with me until I get better. Don't pull the plug because you got other things to do. Be patient. This is probably one of the biggest challenges, honestly, for us. We, I think we are prone to become really frustrated and give up on each other too quickly. Yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying you, you, know, you don't admonish people. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that as we're working through these things with each other, if we don't see a quick response, then we just say, I'm done. Think about this. We, I think we are guilty of treating our weak, discouraged, or irresponsible brothers and sisters in Christ very differently than God has treated us when we have been weak, discouraged, and irresponsible. Hmm? Be patient with me, God! What is your problem? Why haven't you got this yet? Why haven't you figured it out? Why aren't you responding like you should? Be patient with me, God. Yeah? Man, we're a messed up lot. So, consider those things. You want him to be patient with you? And he is. My goodness, he is. Thank you, God, for your patience. And he calls you. He does that to you that you might extend that same patience, that same grace, that same compassion and care to his children. All right? Verse 15. We're almost done. See that no one repays any... We can't go part three, sweetie. We can't do it. She just left. That was a laugh like, are you serious? That's what that was right there. Yes, I am serious. We're going to finish quick, okay? It's, it's really... You've, we covered this whole issue, this topic in Romans. So go back there and get the full exposition of not doing evil to one another. But anyway, look, see that no one repays. So now he turned to the congregation. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And I, the way I understand this in connection with 14 is, as one writer puts it, the behavior that's commanded here is directed through the reader, as he's reading it, toward others in the church. Believers are to see to it that nobody in the body pays back evil for evil. In other words, this command is directed to the strong in the faith. So just as they were to help those in the fellowship with problems, as we saw, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, okay, help, look, this is to you, body, for those kind of folks struggling with those particular issues, you are to do these things. Now they are instructed to help with problems between believers, See to it that when one believer wrongs another believer, that that believer does no evil to the other believer. Certainly it applies to every Christian in there. They too would know they're not to do that. But if you see, if if evil happens, if a wrong is done between one brother to another brother or one sister to another sister, and you are aware of such things, and they're looking to get revenge, retaliate, you need to instruct them Not to do that, but rather to do good. It's your responsibility. 
You know, I don't care. You know, look, if they want to kill each other, let them kill each other. No, no, you need to shut that down. You know, again, you don't have control. You can't, you know, take them to prison or anything like that, but you are to instruct them. Listen, you're not thinking rightly. God has not called you to such things. That's the world's way. The world retaliates when it is wrong. That's how the world thinks. No longer you, Christian. That's not the, that's not the message of Christ. That's not what you've learned from Christ. You are not to retaliate against your brother and sister if they've wronged you. Rather, you are to do them good. That's love. One writer says, this prohibition runs counter to one of the strongest impulses of fallen human nature. For no vice is more certainly regarded as a virtue among men than is retaliation. And that is so true. Look at TVs, look at movies, look at music. I can just, all of a sudden, like four country songs just came into my head right now. <laughs> Something about a chainsaw. I mean, some, the retaliation, retali- and people are like, yeah, that's right, that's right, you do me wrong. You better keep both eyes open, you know? It's coming. And there's almost like a pride in that, like you should expect that. that beloved, that's the way of the world. That is not the way of Christ. In fact, one author says, he suggests that the practice of non-retaliation among Christians by the early church may have been responsible in some measure for the impact the early Christians made on the men of their day. In other words, that was so contrary. Wait a minute. He did you wrong. And you're not going to wrong him back? What's up? This is weird. Well, let me tell you about my Lord. Right? They saw that was a, an extreme difference among the body, among Christians. We're almost done. And one writer points out that for Christians, the severest, most painful disappointments, I agree with this, come not from the wickedness of the unbelieving world, but from other sheep within the church. In other words, when a sheep wounds a sheep. Sheep are definitely capable, Christians, of harming other sheep, sinning against them in a variety of ways, such as attacking them with wicked words that include gossip and slander, or ostracizing them from fellowship and ministry opportunities, or harming them more overtly by influencing them towards sinful behavior. But there's no place among Christians for retaliation or personal vengeance. The only one who has a right to retaliate is God. That's what the scriptures teach us. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. That means I'm looking out for my brothers and sisters. I'm involved with them. I'm partnering with them. For their good and for the glory of God, I must see to it that no one repays evil for evil. Look, I only have so much control. I can't make someone not do something, but I need to warn, I need to talk, I need to admonish, I need to encourage and instruct in the word. That is not proper behavior for you, beloved. You don't understand. No, I, I get it. He wronged you. She wronged you. I get it. Now, this is how you are to respond according to the word of God, according to our Lord, whom you say you follow. This is how you are to respond. Respond. 
And not just not repay evil, but seek, look at, seek to do good. And good refers to acts that are beneficial and helpful rather than harmful. Oh, yeah, okay, like I'm going to do them good? Yeah. I know, it's crazy. It's the power of the gospel. It's the power of a new life. It's the power of Christ. It's an evidence of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you that you would do such things. And just think about your salvation. You did evil to him. You deserve his vengeance. But he did you good in Christ. When wrong, the Christian should respond in love. The welfare of our brothers and sisters, even those who have hurt us, is to be our primary concern. You think by hurt, you're not helping anybody because we're a partnership. So one brother's wronged you or sister's wronged you, so I'm going to wrong them back? Oh, that helps the health of the body. That's so, that's so great. That's going to help us you know, advance, be better, stronger. That's like, you know, the stupid gang warfare stuff, right? They struck us, so we go back and strike them. Then we go back and strike them. Then where does it ever end? It never ends. Death, chaos, that's the result of that nonsense. And of course, that concern, Paul points out, is to extend even beyond the church, but to all people as well. I'm no doubt thinking about those who are persecuting them. Seek to do them good. What? Yeah, it's whole, this is a Holy Spirit thing because our natural inclination is the exact opposite. So let me illustrate it all like this as I wrap. You think of a military unit. Think of a military unit because that military language is used very often by Paul to refer to the church and Christians, and I think it is appropriate. The health and success of a military unit, okay? The health and success of a military unit, like... I'm going to say the church. Hi, brother. Military guy over there, so he loves it when I talk about military stuff. Think of us as a military unit, okay? And we have an enemy, and it's not us. It's not, it's not each other. We're not, we're not the enemies to each other, okay? But we have an enemy, and we're fighting a battle. And in order to fight that battle, we need to be fit, Right? We need to be doing what we need to be doing. So, got to admonish the idol, right? If I got someone on the unit who's not fulfilling his responsibilities, that hurts the whole unit. Yeah? You get what I'm saying? So I need to admonish, I can't let it go. The strength of this unit is depending on all of us doing our part. Admonish the idol. For the good of the unit, for the success of the unit to fight the battle that it's got to fight. Encourage the faint-hearted. I got a soldier who's down. He's hurting bad. Not physically, just I got to talk to him. I got to get him. I got to get his head straight again. I got to get him back in the game. Help the weak. I mean, just physically speaking, if I got a wounded soldier, that hurts the unit. I got to come alongside him. I got to hold him up. I may need to carry him for a while as we keep advancing. But I'm there for him. And he'll be there for me. Be patient with them all. If I start blowing up on the unit, they're gonna, that's not going to be good for anybody. i got to patiently work at this. See to it that no one repays evil for evil. 
Oh, yeah, you better believe it. What if the unit turns on each other? Think about it. That military unit is going down. The second they turn on each other, then they don't even, the enemy can just sit back and watch. <laughs> I got him. No, see to it. Don't do evil to your, I know. He needs, to, he needs to ask for forgiveness. I know, don't, no. Do him good. The health of this unit needs you to do him good. Don't do him wrong. Do him good. You get it? We are a military unit in that sense. We are fighting a battle. You need to see it that way. We're not just some folks, strangers. We are brothers and sisters in Christ placed here in North Fontana to fight a battle. In order to do that well, we need to come align with these exhortations and all the others concerning the one another's. I'll close with this. One writer says this, he is laying Paul on the whole congregation, the responsibility, the whole congregation, to care for each other as sisters and brothers, to give appropriate support, encouragement, or admonition to the church's problem children, and to ensure that all its members follow the teaching of Jesus, cultivating patience, renouncing retaliation, and pursuing kindness. It is a beautiful vision of the local church as a community, not only of mutual comfort and encouragement, but of mutual forbearance and service as well. Father, we thank you for your word. May it have its way in this local church and in our hearts. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.